Uh, let's ask God to help us now with his word. Uh, true and living God, we thank you for sending your son, our Lord Jesus, into the world. And we do thank you that he is the son of David, the one who brings us peace with you, the one who will bring the new heaven and earth and make all things right. Uh, we pray now that we will get a glimpse of his greatness and know the goodness of being his followers. Uh, we pray that we would see your glory in his face. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to understand it and receive it with faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see and they follow him. A great longing satisfied, a great not rightness in their lives made right. The blind, the blind who called out to Jesus for mercy, see. And the gospel story prompts us to think, if Jesus can satisfy our longing for life instead of death, if he can make right what is not right in us, make whole what is broken and damaged, if he can shine the light of life into our dark hearts, then like the blind men, it's a reasonable conclusion to think it's worth a little effort, worth a little embarrassment and disapproval to come to him and to stick with him. Now, the satisfaction for the longing of, for, of that longing for sight starts in the case of the blind men with a very reasonable conclusion about Jesus seen in their bold identification of him as son of David. Jesus is leaving Jericho, the last stop on the pilgrim route trod by many as they came to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And hearing from the crowd that Jesus is passing by, the men cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David, it's this identification of Jesus that lies behind their determination to be heard by Jesus. Son of David. As we heard in the uh, children's talk, the son of David was the longed-for heir of God's promises to David. He was the king who would bring God's judgment and salvation, the one in whom the promises of an eternal reign, when God's people would know peace, would be fulfilled. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And that promised peace was not just the cessation of war, good as it is, as we remember on Anzac Day. Now, that promise of peace was more. It was wholeness, security, the flourishing of the lives of his people, God's people, the renewal of creation. And it was a time when, freed from their enemies, the ravages brought by Adam's rebellion against God, the rebellion continued and intensified in his descendants in violence and destruction and oppression. It was the time when God's people and creation would be healed, made whole. You heard that time described in Isaiah. 
Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs. In the horde of the jackals in their lairs, there will be grass, reeds and papyrus. A road will be there and a way and it will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander in it. There will be no lion there and no vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them. Sorrow and sign will flee away. And it is the son of David who will himself bring that wholeness, give that wholeness to his people. And so it's right for the blind men to look to the son of David for their healing. But was it reasonable to identify Jesus as this son? Or were they just indulging in wishful thinking, clutching at straws like desperate people do? Well, no. After three years of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee and Judea, theirs was a reasonable identification based not on what they have seen personally but on what they've heard. For they have heard what we have heard in the Gospel and more. They have heard of Jesus' healings. What Jesus described to John's messengers in this way, the blind received their sight, the lame walked, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told good news. And these healings didn't happen in the dark. They were well known. Crowds came to Jesus for healings. Verse 30, chapter 15, large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak and many others. They put them at his feet and he healed them. Jesus' ministry, you see, was like the prophecies of Isaiah coming to life in their time. And the blind men have heard Jesus teaching and preaching as well, teaching that demanded a life ready to live under God's reign, a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, a cleansed heart, for Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom, this blessed time of peace, was near. Near because it was being brought by him. As Jesus said to his religious critics, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God, has come upon you. In word and deed, Jesus was bringing, embodying the reign of God, that glorious time of peace. These blind beggars' identification of Jesus as son of David was reasonable. And with that identification, their determination to have their cry heard by Jesus is also reasonable. In fact, it would have been unreasonable to allow themselves to be put off For here and here alone, uniquely, could they have hope of seeing again, of having 
lives of productive work restored to them, of contributing, not depending on the charity of others, hope of dignity and security, of living lives enriched by colour and light. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now that's a humble request, isn't it? They're not telling Jesus what he must do. They recognise he's in charge, not them, and they recognise his power and ask for mercy. But the crowds, probably crowds of Galilean pilgrims, are not interested in their needs, as you heard. They've got their own agendas for Jesus. Keep quiet, they say. Don't interfere with Jesus' progress to Jerusalem. Don't interfere with his becoming king there and carrying us along with him into power. And the crowds want their agenda to be Jesus' agenda, to have him do nothing else than achieve their goals. But healing embodies the nature of Jesus' rule. It expresses salvation for the humble who believe. It shows the way he will use his power, not to save himself, but to serve. And so he stops and calls them. And they have a life-changing exchange with Jesus, which is wonderfully simple. Simple and personal. Jesus asks them directly, what do you want me to do for you? He engages them personally. Even though their need appears obvious, he doesn't assume. Even though he knows people's hearts, he asks, asks, so they will know their healing's not mechanical or automatic or magical, not, getting, not them getting the Lord to do what they want by pressing the right buttons, and not just some random coincidence, you know, the universe restoring their sight while talking to Jesus, the kind of random coincidences many materialists seem to believe happen. No, he stops and asks, so they will know their healing is a personal gift from the Lord to them out of his kindness. And therefore, a gift, a healing they can be confident in. They ask for their sight to be restored. Lord, open our eyes. They ask for wholeness, for the restoration of creation. It's a simple, direct expression of the longing of their hearts. And our Lord grants their request. With a touch, their sight is restored. It really is that simple. They ask and they receive. And it's simple because of who Jesus is. He is the Son, powerful to bring wholeness. He needs no incantations or delay to find material. He has that creation restoring, life-giving power in himself. And he is compassionate. There's no need to bargain or persuade Jesus to be interested in them, to do good to them. It's simple because they're not relying on themselves but wholly on Jesus. Remember, the rich man asked, what must I do? And left sad. They call out for mercy and depend wholly on Jesus, on his kindness and power. And they hear Jesus say, what do you want me to do for you? And it is done. It is so simple, as simple as asking. 
And their response is simple too, uncomplicated. Immediately they could see and they followed him. They see and they follow. No negotiation, no calculation. They don't seek his permission. They're not held back by possessions or fear for their reputation. They see. They experience Jesus' power and kindness. They know he is the source of the great good that changes their life. They have their reasonable identification of Jesus confirmed in their experience and they follow Jesus, the son of David. But we can't end the story there. For sight, like following, has consequences. And they are following a Jesus who is walking to Jerusalem, walking to the cross. So what did those seeing eyes go on to witness as they followed Jesus to Jerusalem? What do we see in the gospel story? Events that will actually test their decision to follow Jesus, their identification of Jesus as son of David, the coming king. And firstly, they will see the welcoming crowds as Jesus enters Jerusalem and they welcome him as the blind man did. They welcome Jesus as the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David, they cry out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at first you might think this will confirm the blind man decision, but this passing popularity will actually contribute to their testing for the crowds misunderstand Jesus. Their will for Jesus is not Jesus' own understanding of his person and work. They want Jesus to conquer, not be crucified. And so the now-seeing men will have to decide whether they will follow King Jesus himself or the king of popular imagination, the king who will further the crowd's will. And then as the week goes on, they will see secondly, the fearful hatred of the religious authorities that opposes Jesus and looks to trip Jesus up in his words, disputing with him and plotting to destroy him. And by the end of the week, Friday, they will see Jesus' apparent failure and defeat, his failure to be the liberating, conquering king of the Jews as he is mocked, dying on a Roman cross. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Still son of David, king of the Jews? Could these blind men have been wrong? Could Jesus' opponents who decry him as fraud be right? The cross would seem to say so. But you see, even then, There's a conflict, isn't there, in their experience that they could witness those events, see them with their own eyes. Actually keeps telling them Jesus is the son of David. All the time with every piece of contrary evidence they witness, those seeing eyes tell them they were right. That even on the cross, Jesus was still the son of David. How could they make sense of it? And then, of course, like us, they will hear of resurrection, of Jesus alive, bodily, raised from the dead, appearing to his followers. Then they would know he is the son of David, greater than they imagined, truly the son who would reign forever on David's thrones. In Isaiah's words, 
Of the greatness of his government of peace and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. With the resurrection, they'll know Jesus is that king who brings a security and a peace for his people that will never end. For he lives forever to keep them. And they'll know that he's that because on that cross, in Peter's words, he was bearing our sin to bring us back to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. With that resurrection, they would know in Paul's words that the Lord Jesus was cancelling our debt to God's law, defeating the enemies, triumphing over them, who have held us captive by their lies and the death it brings. In bringing forgiveness by his sacrifice of himself, they knew that Jesus was destroying forever the capacity of sin and death to destroy and harm his people. The blind men's calling out to Jesus, the son of David, for mercy was, was reasonable and receiving his mercy, simple. Their confession, yes, was sorely tested, but they were right, right to confess and follow, more right than they knew. And friends, I wanted to preach on this passage because in the experience of the blind men, we have a picture of all Christian believing, reasonable, simple, tested and right. To call out to Jesus on the basis of what we have heard is reasonable. Reasonable because of who he is and reasonable because of our need. You see, like the blind men, we are relying on reports from those who know Jesus, just like them, those who have witnessed what he said and did to form our understanding of who Jesus is. And what have we heard? Well, we have heard down the centuries the gospel witness, the gospel witness to his ministry and teaching, which were public events spoken about in the lifetime of those who witnessed them. So Peter could say on the day of Pentecost, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. They didn't have to make it up, they knew. And to Cornelius in Acts as Peter preaches the gospel, he says, you know what has happened throughout the providence of Judea. Jesus' miracles, his mighty works, they're not made-up stories. They are witnessed events. Oh, and yes, we've also heard the gospel witness to a purposeful death, not an accident. A death Jesus knew he was going to die, repeatedly told his followers he would die. A death he knew was God's will to save God's people. In John 6, he speaks of it as his life being given for the life of the world, the bread of life. Oh, Matthew 20, 28. 
we see he speaks of a death that was to a, a ransom, a ransom to set us free from sin and death. Jesus knew his death was coming and knew it would be purposeful. And yes, we have heard the gospel witness to assure resurrection. Our first century people knew the difference between the living and the dead probably better than us. They weren't expecting a dead Jesus to live. Jesus had to convince them he was alive and he did, appearing to Mary in the garden, to Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus, to the disciples in the upper room, to sceptical Tom, sceptical, sceptical Thomas, right? Right. Anyhow, he was seen by them, talked to them, he ate with them, he offered his hands and sides to be touched by them. And there were many more appearances. The gospel witness to Jesus is the testimony of real people to real events preserved for us by being written down in real books whose reproduction can be traced through history, the foundation of something new, something real in history, the Christian church. It is reasonable to accept the gospel's witness. You see, why would those men and women lie, especially when they're committed to a Lord whose word is truth and to a God who hates lies? where there's no material benefit, just danger and loss for them and the account of their own understanding and actions in their witness in the Gospels is so unflattering. It is reasonable to accept the Gospel witness. But we don't just have today the testimony of the New Testament. We have the witness of thousands and thousands whose lives, like the blind men, have been changed by calling out to the risen Jesus. You are sitting here amongst many of them, and you'll probably know others. You see, it's become very fashionable to discount or explain away the experience of Christians. But every believer has a story of asking Jesus for mercy and being heard. Now, if you're a young person here and, and you're brought by your parents, well, you should ask them for their story if you haven't heard it. If you're curious, ask those you are sitting with or, or those you have a cup of tea with of their story of calling out to Jesus for mercy and being heard. Every believer has that story. It's reasonable based on what we've heard in the gospel and from believers now to call out to Jesus because he is the living Saviour, the Lord with all authority, and he still hears. And it's reasonable to call out to him because he alone can meet our need. No one else can. We all sin. And you can probably think of your sins, lying and lust, envy, selfish unkindness, or maybe your biggest sin. Your determination to ignore God, to not listen to him, to push him out of your life. We all sin and the punishment for sin is death, eternal death. Jesus alone can forgive our sin for he is the son of God, appointed by God to be the judge on the final day, the one with authority to judge and to forgive. Because of our sin, we all die and will be condemned in the judgment to eternal death. He alone can give us life, eternal life. 
And in a world where our sin brings great grief and wounds and scars, our lives, he alone can bring us to share in his kingdom, the new heaven and earth, the time that Isaiah spoke of when sorrow and sighing will flee away, for he is the king, the son of David. And if you're not yet a believer, you should hear this. It is reasonable to call out to Jesus, the Lord, the King. It's worth the effort to come to him and not be deterred by others, worth the embarrassment of, you know, being seen to be serious, of thinking that there may be something more than this life, worth the acknowledgement of the not-rightness of your life, of admitting to yourself the longing to find wholeness and knowing you cannot find it in yourself. In fact, it would be unreasonable not to be determined to be heard by the one who can give forgiveness, wholeness and life. And as the blind men found, dealing with Jesus is so simple because of who he is. He has the authority to forgive. He can do it by his word. He doesn't need to consult. And you can't add anything to that authority, do anything to unleash his power. He has in himself all authority and he is compassionate. You don't need to bribe him to be merciful to you. You don't need to perform feats to get his attention. He is kind and merciful. This is the way he is and always will be and he came to save. And in his word he says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and he lives. He hears our cry for mercy, the mercy each one of us needs. (coughs) The mercy we need to be forgiven, to be made one of his people, to be given his spirit. The asking that's actually symbolised in baptism. Because Jesus has the authority, because he is compassionate, because he lives, Finding mercy is simple. It is to ask and receive, but it is a personal dealing. Asking, as every believer knows, asking the Lord Jesus. It's not a mechanical, automatic transaction. It's not a reward. It's not perform this action, fill out this car, get the 100 points and claim your prize. It's actually a gift the Lord Jesus gives personally to those who ask. But you do have to ask. You have to answer when he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now that asking we call prayer. And if you've never prayed, think of it as words spoken to the Lord Jesus, whether out loud or in your heart, the Lord you cannot see, but the Lord who is there. And he is asking. You should ask for that forgiveness to be made one of his people, to be given his spirit. It is simple to ask for what he willingly gives and receive and then to follow, to follow by doing what Jesus teaches, to be a follower amongst his followers. For our Lord teaches his word through his people. But just like the blind men, our confession of Jesus and our following of Jesus will be, is always tested. 
and it'll be tested in much the same ways. It'll be tested by popularity, by the crowd and those who want to use the crowd seeking to enlist Jesus to their cause, whether it's their prosperity or their political power or their respectability. The crowd will praise Jesus, speak a lot about him, but not listen to him as he tells them his priorities, as he insists on being the Lord he will be, the Lord whose kingdom is not of this world. The Lord who says you can't serve God and money. The Lord who tells his followers you must love your enemies or keep sex for a marriage between a man and a woman. Being carried along by the crowd can so easily divert us from following the Lord Jesus, make us lazy in seeking his will. We will be tested by the crowd. And our following will be tested by hatred. The hatred of God that wants to oppose him and undermine his rule through his word. Now, we've experienced that. You know, the assaults of the new atheists like Dawkins who assert the Christian faith is for people who have abandoned their intellects or of those who want to remove any constraint on their behaviour who hate God because he challenges their autonomy and then claim Christian morality and Christians are harmful. That's just hatred of God. And we've experienced over the last 100 years or more a constant assault on the reliability of the Gospels. And dealing with those assaults will test us. They all take time and energy and they can unsettle us because they sound so plausible and they come from people who are so well-credentialed, yet time and again they are shown to be empty. And yet they keep coming back like the many-headed hydra because of hatred of God. We will be tested by hatred of God and we will be tested by failure. That's right. By the times when our experience does not seem consistent with our confession of Jesus as the living Lord. Whether it's a a failure to beat sin in our lives again or the experiencing of the weakness of illness or experiencing unjust treatment for being his. We'll experience those times when we seem so weak and powerless while we say we are the loved children of the living God. Our following will always be tested. Popularity, hatred of God, apparent failure. But brothers and sisters, we are better off than those blind men who felt the conflict between what they confessed about Jesus and the cross he was enduring. You see, we start this side of the resurrection. We start with knowing that suffering according to God's will is the road to glory, with knowing that weakness is not a denial of our being children of God, but the context in which God again and again shows the greatness of his greatness and power. And we face hatred knowing Jesus taught that there would be trials and opposition. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Oh, we know what Paul said to the new believers in Pisidia. 
It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The hatred and opposition we experience that seeks to destroy our faith actually just confirms for us that the word of Jesus is true and his understanding of reality and the human condition is true. It confirms the truth of the gospel. And we have the spirit, the spirit who assures us of our present relationship with God, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit, we are told, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing what is to come, that new heaven and earth. Our trials cannot deny the truth of the gospel, nor the reality of having our eyes open to see Jesus' glory and receiving from him forgiveness and life. And one day our confession will be publicly vindicated. That day when every knee bows to Jesus and every tongue confesses him Lord, the day when the living Lord Jesus returns. Being a follower of Jesus, relying on him for life that he alone can give is reasonable. It is simple and yes, it will be tested, but it is right because Jesus is the son of David the promised king, the one to whom God has said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, the one to whom every knee will bow. And so if you're not yet a believer, like the blind men, call out to him for mercy. It is the sensible thing to do. Don't let the opposition of others stop you. And if you're a believer... Well, here in this passage, to see is to follow. To follow through testing times to the resurrection. So keep on. For our Lord has said, it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you have preserved it to us. We thank you that you have brought it to us. We thank you that it contains true witness to our Lord Jesus. And we thank you that the Lord to whom it witnesses, whose words and actions we can read of in the gospel, lives. And we thank you that he is, as we meet him in the gospel, kind, compassionate, the one with authority to forgive, and make us your children. We pray in your mercy that we would receive the gospel witness wholeheartedly, that we would trust it, and trust it come to know the Lord Jesus for himself, know his love, know his mercy, know his power, and be strengthened by it to persevere in following him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.